When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a small town boy. Because that is a song that you and I used to talk about. Because I always wanted you to play uh, the lead singer of that band, Bronsky, Bronsky Beat. Beat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember? We used to talk about it when you lived yeah. in Archway. And yeah. it was like, didn't you actually want to play that role? Like, I would have loved to have played that role, but I'm a bit older now. I can't remember the singer's name. What was his name? Jimmy Somerville. Have they made a film about him yet? I don't know. But They haven't, but I think I'm probably a bit too old, but maybe they could do something with makeup. Yeah, maybe they could use like CGI to make you look really young. CGI? Like wow. <laughs> <laughs> they really want me. Yeah. <laughs> so Small Town Boy is a song that reminds me very much of growing up in the 80s. You and I were both born um, in the early 80s. I'm 1980. Mm. I think you're 81. Correct. And um, you're so young, my love. Mm-hmm. And uh Growing up, I was often listening to pop music. And as you well know, Russell Tovey, and probably most of our listeners, I was a massive Madonna fan. And we both grew up in towns outside of London. So I grew up in Maidenhead in Berkshire, which was a very conservative small town. You grew up in Essex. And I think we would both like run to the big city to find our family and to eventually come out as gay men, um, which I think now everyone's coming more out as queer, maybe. But back in the 80s and 90s, it was very much specifically gay. Like we were coming out as the kind of gay young men. And it was really quite a terrifying time like we'd grown up with the legacy of the AIDS pandemic and all the uh, messaging around that which at the time had been quite uh, at times even violent like quite aggressive um, marketing and I remember it from yeah terrifying and from a young young age from the age of sort of five six I have very clear memories of all that messaging in the UK particularly Mm -hmm. but there was the pop star Madonna and through her music I was introduced to a whole kind of idea of this idea of like queer family and like you know, dancers coming together in her in Bed with Madonna movie and particularly art. So that's how I actually got into art because of Frida Kahlo. But one of the other artists I discovered through record sleeves was actually Keith Haring. And today this feels like a monumental moment for the podcast because mm. Keith Haring is, is an artist that has changed the world in so many ways. And weekly, it feels like, continues to uh, reach new audiences. You know, the work comes alive in so many different ways. Like I was even even um, gifted 
recently a, a sweatshirt from Uniqlo. Um, sorry, I, I gifted it to my friend's daughter. And, you know, she's 12 years old and she's obsessed with it. And every time I see her in Margate, she's wearing the orange, you know, Uniqlo sweat top. And it's mm. oversized and, you know, she looks really cool in it. And I remember first discovering him through the Red Hot and Dance uh, record sleeves, which was a kind of, I think it was in response to kind of ACT UP and highlighting and raising money for AIDS charities in the kind of early 90s when a lot of Madonna's friends were actually passing away including Keith Herring of course and I always remember watching the the In Bed With Madonna documentary and her dedicating um, you know maybe an evening performance to Keith and I was like who's Keith and it was that that then led me to start researching him and learning about his amazing legacy of art which even at the point where he died he'd made so much incredible work more than most people do in a lifetime you know quadruple the amount of what what he had anyway it just changed my life and today we are meeting the executive director and president of the Keith Herring Foundation and this is a a great privilege for me I've not actually met in person but you recently did because you're filming in New York and you Mm. went to the studio which we we can explore so Mm. we would like to welcome to talk art Gil Gil Vasquez Vasquez. (laughs) hi Gil hello thank you for the warm welcome uh, that was that was great to hear how you came upon Keith and how you discovered Keith. Uh, it's it's really interesting because I was asked recently, you know, wh- why is it that we don't tire of Keith Haring and the imagery? You know, it's interesting what you said because you you know people stumble upon it in different ways. You know, you stumbled upon it through record sleeves, and you know how I think people sometimes stumble on it is through stuff like Uniqlo. You know, like the collaborations that we do with different brands, you know, these guys right here. Yeah. Well, most people do encounter it through through a T-shirt design like nowadays. They like like they wouldn't realize how coded and loaded the imagery is. And the fact that he's he's kind of vocabulary of these characters that are repetitive and they're repeating, repeating out in the world. It's like this never ending cycle of, of, of Keith Haring imagery have an incredible impact still 30 years after his death and even more relevant now because it feels like we're going back into you know a, a political upheaval which is what he stood for which he stood against why, why do you think his legacy 30 years on is is still as vibrant and vital and important i think the key word really is is resonance you know i think keith was fighting a very similar fight that we are fighting today in his day in the 80s uh, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, you know, the, the, the counterparts, uh, very conservative. HIV AIDS were not mentioned. You know, the people that were suffering uh, with HIV at the time were, you know, in a sense, thought to be disposable. People that were on drugs, gay people. Uh, you know, I think at one point, even Haitians were considered high risk group. I mean, the entire country of Haiti. I mean, it, it's mind blowing. And in a sense, I, you know, it seems as if we have regressed in some ways, right? I mean, Roe versus Wade was something that, you know, we didn't think would ever, would ever be uh, sort of rescinded. And, and, and we are in, in just, I don't know, very dangerous times, I think. And I think uh, Keith Haring, the imagery, uh, the accessibility of it, but also the, the radical nature of it. Right, it's it's deceptively simple and deceptively uh, accessible. 
uh, in a sense, it's really it's really radical. And 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 as you said, Russell, it's it's coded, right? So if you know, you know, kind of thing. If you know what Keith stood, you know, if if you see a baby or a dog, you know, and and wear that, and it could be very deceptively simple. But if you know what Keith stood for, it you're basically in lockstep with that sort of radical message of of equity and and equality. Wow. So we find you in the studio today, the original studio that Keith worked in, and that was purchased by Keith in 1984. Is that correct? Well, he he didn't buy it. And this was not the original. He had a studio a little further uh, up on Broadway as his original studio. And then he moved into a bigger one, which was this one in 1985. And what year did you meet him? I met him in May of 1988 at the tender age of 17. And how did that, how did that how, how did you end up meeting him and how did you end up becoming such a a, a linchpin for, you know, his legacy? Uh interestingly, I, I worked at a t-shirt store uh near Broadway, actually on Broadway and Astor Place a few blocks from here. He walks into the store one day and asks for someone who worked there, who didn't happen to be there that day. And I, I said to him, uh, no, you know, um, Kevin, Kevin's not here today, but I'll let him know that you came by. What's your name? Keith. Okay. So Kevin comes in the next day and I'm like, dude, I think Keith Herring was here looking for you. Do you know him? Like what? <laughs> I was stunned. He's like, yes, I know him from the Paradise Garage days. And, you know, if you'd like to meet him, we can, you know, I'll set up a, a visit to his studio. So he, he does. And, and I walk in here and it was as if I had landed on Mars. Just at the same time, I, I got exposed to things that I had never, ever been exposed to. You know, I, at, at age 17, I'm from uptown Harlem. I thought all the sort of famous artists uh, were dead. I thought that that was almost a prerequisite of being a famous artist is that you had to be dead. <laughs> you know, so I, of course I was aware of Keith Haring. Uh, I knew of, of his work in the subway. I'm a DJ by trade. So I knew of the work that he did with uh, Run DMC with the Adidas campaign. And, and just I was just a, a fan already. So I was I was really well aware of of. Keith Haring, but almost on a surface level, but I didn't know any deeper than that. Uh, so when I, I walked in here, you know, he's like working and there's paintings on the wall, there's posters on the floor, there's boxes of t-shirts, there's a, just a lot of movement. And, and again, I, it's just I, like I had set foot on Mars or something like it was just, you know, so foreign to me. It feels like reading about him, he thrived in chaos. His studio was chaotic. It was loud with music. He loved lots of visitors. As you said, there was boxes of T-shirts. He had lots of ephemera. He, he was kind of someone who was constantly active, always working and always creating. That is true. And there was also lots of just sort of visual candy around, right? I mean, there's just, you know, lots of just really interesting things to look at, you know, things that he thought were interesting you, you know you'd see coca-cola signs you see uh the mobile standard oil horse the pegasus and those were like very sort of pop sort of americana. iconic logos yeah americana in, in that sense 
kind of and what Warhol was, was looking la- at. A, in a sense, in a sense, yes. In a, you know, it was, it was uh, interesting to him, so he kept it around. So yeah, he, he it, it was chaotic but orderly as well. You know, Keith was a a neat freak in a sense, right? You would think of artists as being sort of like all over the place and and messy, and this was not Keith Haring at all. He was he was the son of a marine, and all his uncles were marines as well. So there was a sort of uh, order and discipline that that was instilled in him, and he was a, a very particular about where things were, and and was a, <laughs> was something of a neat freak. And actually, that's really interesting because he was born in 1958, which I think is the same year as Madonna. And if you think of that whole generation of artists, and even someone like Andy Warhol, who was a bit older than them, but they all came out of this kind of post-war, you know, discipline kind of time of like huge industry and, you know, the American dream and also this passion for celebrity. And I think I loved what Russell was saying about the way that there was this continuous creative energy within his work because it does feel like this kind of maelstrom of kind of just energy force and I think that's what keeps the work so alive to this day like even on a t-shirt you just feel that line that energy that passion Mm. and the reason we love him so much is that when we started talk art it was all about the idea of trying to make art more accessible and less elitist and to bring in ideas of like how pop music can be connected to art and how you know everything is interconnected and I'm really fascinated by that discipline because I think Warhol had it as well you know if you look at all his early illustrations of like shoes and um, all of that stuff there's such a rigor and such a determination to to a vision and to fulfilling that so you know in a way he was so much of his time I guess yeah I mean it's interesting that that you talk a little bit about the fame Keith was not I mean he was he, he didn't want fame for the sake of fame mm-hmm. right I mean you know, fame, we think of fame today and, and, you know, you could be famous. Some people are famous for nothing, right? For no <laughs> yeah. reason, for no, for no substantive reason. But Keith, you know, I think wanted, relished fame, not for the sake of it, but to be of service, to be of service to his fellow man, to be of service to mankind, to be of mm-hmm. service to his community, to use and harness that, that fame for good. You know, he didn't get usurped you know, it was fun. He could get into restaurants and he can get into clubs. And that was a, a nice perk. But I don't, I don't think it was for the superficial reasons that most folks want to be famous. I think he, he used it to, you know, to be of service. Well, yeah, it feels like activism was a huge part of his practice. We see his artwork, but it all was responding to um, social injustices that he was experiencing or, or aware of, it, especially HIV/AIDS. But you know, he was a big champion of children's education and, and looking after like low-income, impoverished families. Uh, he was all about safe sex, Greenpeace, anti-nuclear movements. His and legacy- anti-police brutality. You know, police brutality was a big one too. I mean, he he, you know, made his bones in the Lower East Side here. You know, knowing that he wasn't a he, he wasn't a graffiti artist, but he learned a lot from those artists. You know, the, the graffiti art that was happening uh, when Keith came to New York, it was almost like a, a private conversation, right? It, it was not meant, you know, these guys were not doing graffiti, aspiring to be in galleries and in museums. They were talking to each other. It would, and if you were not in the know, you know, you, you could 
kind of see it, but you didn't really understand what was going on. You didn't understand that it was a competition. You didn't understand. You didn't know what bombing was. You didn't know what getting up was. We don't know what right? that is. So You're going to have to explain that. that. <laughs> right. So getting getting up is getting up, meaning your visual, whatever it was, your tag was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Getting up. It was putting it at, at Prince Street. It was being on the number five line, on the number four train, on the number one line. So getting up was really, it was about trying to be all city, like trying to trying to have your tag in as many places as humanly possible, right? So that was the graffiti ethos, getting up. And Keith learned a lot about getting up from the graffiti artist, even though he was not one. He did not consider himself one. Uh, even though he was writing on things and, and, and tagging up in public places where the, the uh, sort of textbook de- definition of graffiti is, you know, defacing pub- public property. But graffiti also is a genre of art, which... You know, Keith and Keith really did not uh, consider himself to belong to. And he'd obviously studied at the School of Visual Arts and very much considered himself a fine artist. And I know that when he was a young man, I think maybe in his teens, he wanted to work for maybe for like Walt Disney. But I think he he realized that wasn't, even though it was something he adored, he actually thought, no, I want to be a fine artist. Like, I think he actually maybe described himself as that. So that's a very big decision, isn't it, to make? And I think that that is what differentiates his work because he always had that intention behind the work. I mean, Walt Disney was a very big influence on Keith, Keith's life, on his, you know, his dad used to draw cartoons uh, with Keith. And, and, you know, so cartoons were very big, a very big deal. Uh, Walt Disney, especially, you know, it's a sad story. Uh, you know, when Keith was in his final days, you know, he was home. Uh, he was in bed really for the last maybe three weeks of his life. And his studio manager at the time, who eventually became the first executive director of the foundation, Julia Gruen, came to visit him once with a letter from the Walt Disney Company basically saying, hey, you know, we, we, you know, we want, we'd like to work with you. And when she, when she said this to Keith, uh, he said, you just want me to live. Wow. You just, you know, you just want me to live. It was, it was kind of like, it was just like one of those dreams that came true. It did come true because we eventually, you know, did start working with Disney and we've done, you know, lots of collaborations with Disney because of the 90th uh, anniversary of Mickey Mouse. So what Disney did was they took every version of Mickey Mouse that has, that has been done by artists, by, you know, just by everyone, including Keith. So that dream did eventually come true, which is the the happy ending to the story uh, after his life. Mm. Yeah. What, Gil, what is your responsibility then for the foundation, for people that don't really understand what an artist foundation is? What is the legacy you're protecting and, and what is so, your day-to-day like job? Day-to-day uh, is, is threefold, right? What I do is is obviously try to protect and enhance the legacy of Keith Haring. What I, what I essentially do, I guess the shortest way to describe my job is to, my job is to carry out Keith's wishes, right? And Keith was interested in three things primarily. One is, is helping people that were suffering with HIV, uh, helping people that were affected by HIV. Keith cared about children. That is a, a huge component of what this foundation does is we give grants to organizations that 
uh, enhance the lives of children and people with HIV, you know. And then the third thing uh, is to protect and enhance the legacy of Keith Haring. That could take many forms. It, it could be exhibitions, it could be publications, it could be documentaries, it could be movies. Uh, and it's also the licensing program, right? So any right. any collaborations that we do with brands, in a sense, is is the enhancement of the legacy of Keith Haring. I happen to, to be a, a huge champion of the licensing program. I think it is a gateway to discovering Keith Haring for, the, for people that don't know who Keith is. So I think, you know, there might be a gap of maybe kids that don't know who he was uh, and may see something at Uniqlo or something at The Gap or something at H&M and causes them to say, who is Keith? Like Robert mentioned, you know, who is, who is Keith? You saw, you saw an album cover and it made you ask the question. Now, on the, you know, if, if you like it just for the imagery, that's all well and good, but it is in a sense coded, right? It's, it's you know, there was a lot more to accessibility and the, the, se- the seemingly simple. Uh, there was a lot, to, a lot more to it. So you can, you can, because we are in the information age, you can look into Keith Haring and find out what he was about. Mm. And you guys don't fundraise. All of the revenue that comes through comes through the licensing for his images and the copyrights. Not just the licensing and the, and the copyright. So we, we are what they call a private non-operating foundation. And you are correct, Russell. We do not fundraise. Our sources of revenue are the licensing as well as the, as the sale of art. Uh, so Keith left quite a lot of art with us. And for many years, we, we sold it very sparingly. Uh, we were very sort of careful and, and we were, you know, uh, conservative about selling, as we still are in a sense. 30 plus years later, we still have a collection to draw from. And, and that collection has increased in value significantly based, based on the, the work that our partners have done. Uh, you know, the Gladstone Gallery does such an amazing job at showing Keith in various, uh, various lights and, and, and different contexts. So they do an amazing job at that, as does Pace Galleries, Pace Editions, which sells our, our prints, our editions that Keith did as well. Is there still work that we haven't seen then as the public? Do you have pieces there in the foundation that haven't been shown publicly? Uh, yes. <laughs> he was what? prolific. I mean, the man, the man was prolific. I mean, the man was, you know, drew every day, painted every day. You know, but some, some things are more in demand than others, right? I mean, you know, there, we'll, be, we'll be doing a show in, uh, in Los Angeles in the spring at the Broad. Wow. Uh, I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not, uh, spoiling. I hope that's not a, I should not maybe be saying that, but, uh, you don't have to cut that out. We're very proud of, You'll very, take very the hit proud for that of the one. upcoming yeah. show. Yeah. I'll take yeah, the yeah. hit. They can yell at me if they want. We're very proud of, very proud of that show. That's going to be a great show. Um, you know, Keith had some, uh, interesting, uh, roots and and relationships in los angeles he was a a good friend of dennis hopper uh you know it's funny uh keith and i went to los angeles once and this is this is during madonna's uh dick tracy moment when she was dating uh warren Beatty, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she invited us to a screening at Warren Beatty's house in, in typical New York fashion. We get there like late. And by the time we get there, everybody's gone. You know, she's like half asleep. She's like, the hell? This, just like, it was finished like two hours ago. What are you guys showing up here now? Like, it's really funny. But yeah, so we, we expect that it'll be a, a great show. And, and, you know, there may be things there that haven't been seen before. Whoa. So what was he actually like then, Gil? Because you, you, you've obviously had a, a friendship with him and, and a working relationship. When you met, went to the studio at 17, how long into that did you start kind of being employed or an employee of the studio? So it's actually funny because I've never, I never worked for Keith. I never worked for Keith himself. We were just friends. He was funny. He was intense, very particular, very, um, he liked things a certain way and, and, uh, was a, a, a huge fan of art. I mean, we would go to shows. We went to a Hieronymus Bosch show mm-hmm. And Keith was just, I mean, just like a kid at a toy store. Like he just was just over the moon that he could go to the show and, you know, he, he'd like to look at these things like really closely. Like he just want to look at the, the strokes and he wanted to see the paint and the, the, just, you know, he just wanted to be in it. Uh, so he was a very big fan of, of art, you know, like he, he had, uh, he was just a kid about that kind of thing. When you say he was intense, intense in what way? Intense in, in terms of his, his standards. His quality standards had to be, uh, you know, he just, he just had a certain bar that, you know, he would never go beneath. And, and he, when he painted, it was, it was with purpose. Intense in that way, not, not, not like he was a jerk or anything. Right, right, no, he, right. was, he was really great and he was really intense and he lit up every room he walked into. He just was a force of nature. In, in that way, you know, he, you know, I, I, I do want to make the distinction that I never worked for him while he was alive. He did ask me in 1989, he asked me if I wanted to be a part of the foundation of the, of the foundation he was creating. At the time, I didn't know what a foundation was, what a foundation did. And he was, you know, he explained that it was a way for us, for me and us, the other people that he chose to carry out his wishes. Essentially, that's what I'm still doing. It's kind of an amazing achievement as well, what you guys have done over the past um, 30 years as a foundation. And I feel like it's really setting up, in many ways, a new template for such a operation because it, it is so many layers and it's so detailed and it's so much responsibility. And you really have to protect the intention of the artist. And I've got friends that, you know, are getting into their 60s now. They're beginning to think about their foundations, their futures, partly because of a lot of the work you guys have done or like other organizations like the Henry Moore Foundation or you know there are certain key ones that I think have such great work with such integrity and you know if you think back to all those decisions you've had to make about um, collaborations you do in particular with brands I was so impressed researching this episode with the Uniqlo one the recent one because it was like 40 years since Keith's first solo exhibition in New York and it was almost like using that Uniglo um, platform to sort of talk about art history and a very specific moment in Keith's career and in the art world of that time. Can we zone in a bit and go back and think about 1982? And like, I know you maybe didn't know him at that point, but you must obviously now know about that era because the photographs of that exhibition and and, and that dynamic of all the different groups of creative people, um, I just found it like a fascinating story. 
Yeah, I think, you know, Keith in 1982, you know, I, I, I would say a little bit before 1982, he, he, he's finding his tribe, right? And his tribe consists of the, the people that he went to school with, also, you know, people that he met outside of school, people like Jean-Michel, you know, in a sense, that group, people that were doing exhibitions and, and performances at the Mud Club at Club 57, they were art world outsiders, right? They were more interested in pressing each other, right? They're, they're not trying to, you know, I don't think they ever really tried to like, you know, make ends in the established art world. So what do they do? They impress each other. They do, they put on shows, they put on these, these crazy, you know, neon shows and, and, you know, performances and Keith is with the TV on top of his head. You know, I think he was a performance artist, you know, but that, but in a sense, he honed, he honed his performance art chops there at, at club 57 at mud club. And then later on, you know, the paintings, the murals became a performance you know, he never really lost that aspect of his practice. So, you know, when it's 82 and Shafrazi is like, <laughs> I've gotten quite friendly with uh, Tony Shafrazi and, and Keith thought of him as, as a kind of, a, of an art father in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tony would talk about, you know, how the 60s were really an amazing time in art, the 70s not so much, and then the 80s. This kid, Keith Herring, is working for Shafrazi, painting the walls white, getting ready for the next show, like not even, you know, promoting his own art. Uh, I was a technician within the gallery system. Helping to, to paint the walls. And, and, you know, I think Tony noticed how, how he went about his business, you know, how he was, you know, very particular and put the brushes a certain way. And, and mind you, he's painting the walls white just to get ready for the next show. He, it, Tony knows nothing about his art but notices him because of how he conducted himself and how organized he was. And I guess, you know, I guess he knew he was from SVA and Tony's like, well, you know, what about you? What about, what, what are you doing art-wise? And, you know, Keith was very sort of sheepish and shy and invited him to something. And then, you know, and then, you know, so by the time that the, the first Shafrazi show was happening, Shafrazi in a sense is like, you got, listen, you guys are the ones dictating what is what is cool and what is supposed to be happening here. Just go to town. So which is why you see like every ounce of space, every inch of space covered. And, and you know, this is probably not a, uh, you know, not the way a, a normal gallery show was put together. But, you know, these these kids were they had different ideas about it and, and they were they were rule breakers in a sense, mm. right? So they're, they're doing things their way. They're doing it in a very different way. And, and it, just was a, it just was a time. It was just a time, you know, and, and not only is Keith wasn't working in a vacuum, he's being influenced by all these other forces, by hip hop, by these break dancers, mm. you know, by graffiti, by all these things that are just also happening at the time, not to mention the political climate of the time. Mm. So, you know, it wasn't just happening in a vacuum it was he was part of the greater sort of zeitgeist 
Mm. Yeah. And and that particular show in 82, like you said, the walls were just literally filled with art. And at the time, apparently that was quite a shocking thing to like rock up to that exhibition and be surrounded by that many works. It's like a huge salon hang in a sense. And what I found interesting earlier, the Hieronymus Bosch reference, if you think of his work, like again, every single bit of the, the picture plane is filled with so much imagery. And I think there's something quite epic about the work of Keith Haring and, and, that, and that installation aesthetic that he had. Um, even if you think about, I don't know, like Madonna in the Like a Virgin era where he, he actually like painted her jacket and her clothes or, or when he painted Grace Jones, you know, in a performance. There's something about the total coverage, you know, of the body, of the wall, right. of the exhibition, which I just think is right. so fantastic. And then you're also immersed in, in music. You're also, you know, yeah. this, is not a, this is not a staid elite, you know, suits. No, this is, you know, b-boys and, and graffiti artists and thugs from the Lower East Side and, and also mixing with, you know, collectors with the Rubels and people like that. You know, so it was a very, it was just a really interesting time, you know, and, and again, you know, a DJ like at, at an opening was probably something that was not <laughs> a, co- a common occurrence, you know, so uptown culture is meeting downtown culture and it's clashing and it's it's uh collaborative and it's it's you know it's it's just a really interesting time in in new york city also which was like a complete shit show at the time yeah it feels like the perfect storm so you mentioned the sva which is a school of visual arts where he attended in 1978 but one of the most uh, relevant points in his career when he first started attracting attention was these subway drawings which we've touched on which are these chalk art drawings, which was Keith's graffiti in public places where he was arrested multiple times, but he's done, did over 5,000 of them, I think, if that's right to say. And they were these black sheets that replaced uh, an advert on the subways, which we're used to seeing, you know, like all different corporations and and uh, like products are shown to us daily as we travel in and out. And millions of people get to see these things. But Back then, they would put um, a sheet of black paper, like, like kind of photographic um, back, backdrop paper, to yep. kind of hide hide what was there or until something else took that place. And Keith took it upon himself with chalk to, uh, parenthesis, deface these with his own imagery. Right. So it's interesting. I, 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 think, of the, I think of the subway drawings as... as sort of almost the, the most pure thing in Keith's career. Like it, it, to me, it's, it's so foundational and, and it says it speaks to him, speaks to who he was as a person. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you ever run into somebody that you know in a place that you don't expect to see them and it, mm. it takes a second for it to register. So for me, seeing the subway drawings was like that. Right, because I'm I was so used to I'm taking the train to to school every day and I'm used to those spaces being filled by advertisements. Mm. Right. So I'm I'm kind of tuning those things out uh because I don't I don't necessarily like to be pitched to on my day to day, you know, and I'm thirteen, fourteen years old thinking this way. But the drawings, in a sense, did they didn't register at first because I was trying to essentially tune these advertisements out but these things didn't look like advertisements these things were sometimes they were greetings like merry christmas or happy new year or sometimes they were you know pregnant lady with a baby you know and, and they were just really 
interesting and and it it took me again i'm i'm a, a teen at the time it took me a while to to understand what that was to understand what they were i didn't understand necessarily that it was art until you know until i met the man and 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 understood his reasoning for for doing these drawings you know his purpose in a sense was to bring art to the masses to to people that wouldn't necessarily go to galleries would not go to museums so he felt he felt like he would bring it to them and and new york you know such a fast city and and people are just walking by and moving and it's just it's it's an aggressive city that you know if somebody at least gets a glimpse he did his job mm. you know and and it also in a sense uh, the subways were a laboratory mm-hmm. right so in a sense you get to like sketch these things out and, quite quickly, you, know, you had to you do had, them quickly so we quickly, didn't get arrested. Had to, had to do it quickly, right? And then you know you had uh, his his dear friend Sen Kuang Chi, who would take photos of them after the fact. And then you know maybe he would sort of think about some of these messages, ones that resonated more with him, and then they would later become paintings. You know, not exactly yeah. maybe the same, but there were certain ones that you know you could see that there's like a caterpillar with a computer head, and that eventually mm. became you know, more than one painting, I, I believe. But he never pre-planned um, so them, did he? They just sort of happened. They, they, he improvised oh. like jazz, I guess, like music. And totally, then yeah. then probably they just, Correct. he probably stood back and went, what is this? And obviously they were then photographed, which is an incredible wherewithal initiative to have that also. I think within the first week, he, his friend went down and the over 5,000 of them have all been documented. So brilliant. Yes. Which, which, you know, the foresight of that, you know, I don't, yeah. I'm not even sure that that was Keith's idea. I think that might've been Quang Chi's idea uh, as his own sort of project. And that in and of itself, my goodness, was, was the foresight and, and how lucky we were that they were thinking this way to mm. document these things because they didn't, you know, I, I, I don't know that he, I don't know that Keith thought that these things would important maybe he did you know i guess maybe he i guess maybe he understood because people were now ripping them off the walls and ripping down the entire frame of the of the going into the subway and ripping these things down you know and that bothered keith at the time he's like oh well you know these things are stolen he considered those stolen wow forget about the fact that he's you know also committing a crime by drawing them let's gloss over that but you know these are stolen works I was going to say, I've got a couple of quotes about that he said about this. Uh, he said, I kept seeing more and more of these black spaces and I drew on them whenever I saw one. Because they were so fragile, people left them alone and respected them. They didn't rub them out or try to mess them up. It gave them this other power. It was this chalk white, fragile thing in the middle of all this power and tension and violence that the subway was. People were completely enthralled. It's a fact. You know, most of the, most of the other art, I say the graffiti, right, was, was in either permanent marker or spray, spray paint, right? So these are very, you know, like very permanent, very aggressive uh, statements, mediums, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're, you're, it's very uh, permanent and, and aggressive, whereas the chalk is, is sort of the antithesis of that, right? It's fragile. It's, it's you know, oh, it's like, it's not a tag. It's not, uh, it's not words necessarily. It's images and it's, it's, it's uh, kind of touching on human things and, and mm-hmm. touching on political things sometimes, 
the the journey of life, isn't it? And I, I think for me, that body of work was in a way the most spiritual. There's something so direct to communicate his core. Mm. Um, you know, the hand, the speed of it, but also that I love the idea of it linked to music. And if you think of like songwriting or like improvisation or like Russell mentioned, like jazz, there's just something in it that's so sort of a celestial, mm. like otherworldly. And and generous. Yes. And generous, right? So he's, you know, risking life and limb, risking his, you know, freedom, at least temporarily, to get these things up. And year, he did this for like five years, you know, yeah. knowing full well that what the risks were. And, and to me, it was, a, it was a really a generous gesture. It was an offer, wasn't it? A gift for the public, for bringing was. art for everyone, that, that ethos. But yeah. he was arrested multiple times. But again, another quote was, <laughs> I was arrested, but since it was chalk and could easily be erased, it was like a borderline case. The cops never knew how to deal with it. The other part that was great about it was the whole thing was a performance. Because I've seen videos online of people gathering around in groups when they got to kind of recognize and see this guy. And at one point he said he was arrested and he was taken down to the cop shop and one of the cops went oh you're the kid who does all them drawings i love your art and let him go so he kind of had this fan base that right. he was building up as well and that that as his fame was growing what was exciting is that he continued to keep these like you said people ripped him off the wall at some point if people see a banksy now it's the same thing they're like i want that i can sell that there's monetary value in that this is why he stopped doing them i mean right. at, at a certain point it just got ridiculous and and you know he didn't he didn't like that people were tearing them down and thinking about it in that way where, oh, I can pull this down and I can sell it. So it, it you know, I think, I think him making the subway drawings, it ran its course. You know, I think it did what it was supposed to do. And, you know, when you think about that, you know, at the time there was no, no internet, there's no social media, you know, so it was like a lot of word of mouth. It was like, you, you had to be there, you know, you, you might've, might've seen the, uh, seen him on the news or you know the cbs thing where you know they're talking about it but that's kind of hit or miss it was a lot of word of mouth and and you had to had to be in kind of in the know i read somewhere that, that the photos of him he often doesn't come across in the photos quite like it did when you actually knew him like apparently he was so charismatic in real life and had like almost like an air of like a superstar, like very captivating, you know, would connect to people very directly, just like the work did. And often the photos, he looks not geeky, but he can sometimes, you know, just looks like Keith Haring. Like, He's a bit of a nerd, isn't he? he looks yeah, like a bit a nerdy, nerd. which I love yeah. about yeah, him. I same. find it super attractive. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was, I think he was geeky. I think he was geeky and, and just super charming. But, you know, there was a, you know, he had a, a real confidence about what he was doing and what his purpose was. You know, uh, just a, a, a certainty. It wasn't, you know, there was no ambiguity about it. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, and of course, you know, there's all these sort of pushing and pulling about being taken seriously. And why do they take me more seriously in Europe than they do in America and this and that? And, you know, all of that stuff is playing in the background, but ultimately it didn't tarnish and, and it didn't knock him off his his path he always mm -hmm. he always knew what his purpose was hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com And actually, I think it's a very unique situation because in a way, the art world wasn't the reason Keith Herring existed or made work. And his success was not really because of those curators or um, museums or anything like that, really. It was the people he was surrounded with, his community. And I read an amazing article that Russell sent me off your website, actually, that Ingrid um, Sishi wrote, who's now a writer who's um, sadly passed away. But she was obviously at Art Forum for a decade of during his rise, in a sense. And um, it's an amazing article, but I found it so interesting that by the time he died he obviously didn't have the kind of respect from institutions that he might have wanted but he had like the general population of the world essentially like loving what he did so he had like popularity but not that kind of critical popularity which in the decades since thanks to a lot of the work you guys have done as well and time of course you know the institutions are now accepting him more but the thing that really shocked me was that the Whitney Museum retrospective in 1997 wasn't um it didn't find a a support like a brand kind of partner because there was still a legacy of kind of like is it homophobic still you know is is it okay for brands to put money supporting a queer artist you know it's fascinating to me that even at that point you you would have hoped by then things would have moved on but they really hadn't right at all well well i mean you know you have to consider that artists are always ahead always in keith's case years and years ahead right i mean i think about this when when we talk about the pop shop you know the pop shop to me when i think about what the pop shop was Pop Shop, in essence, was the first intentional streetwear. What was streetwear before that? It were it was brands that existed as other things. For example, Carhartt. Carhartt was like workwear. It was not meant to be like fashionable. You know, uh, I don't know, Oshkosh Bagash or Lee or Levi. It, it that was not like intentional streetwear. To me, Keith Haring was the granddaddy of that by creating Pop Shop. He mm. created these, you know, these these works of art on T-shirts and stuff like that, so that it was accessible to people the way he wanted his art to be accessible. Same concept as the as the subway drawings. He wanted it to be accessible to the common person. The Pop Shop was a physical store, wasn't it? It was. It was here on Lafayette, 292 Lafayette. It was essentially the first, you know, intentional streetwear. Everybody that has followed since, you know, is, is you know, all the, the Supremes of the world and all that, you know, Supreme was a neighbor uh, kind of on the same street. And, and you know, Keith was looked at as, as the one that really started it on Lafayette. There was nothing else on Lafayette uh, at the time. Because I love the fact that the pop shop, he viewed it as 
an extension of his work. And this was a, a physical store and you could go in there and you would see Keith multiple times if you went back and forth. And it was opened in 1986 and Keith died in 1990, but it, it only closed in 2005. So this, this is a store that carried on Correct. his legacy like 15 years. It, it did, it did carry on. Uh, it, you know, it obviously was not the same without him. Uh, my point, my point in bringing up the pop shop was that even the pop shop was sort of critically panned, right? It was, mm. it was, you know, a lot of people criticized it for, it's like, oh, you know, Keith is, is selling out, you know, now he's selling products on shirts. He's selling mugs. Oh my God. They didn't, they didn't get it. Uh, the, the idea was, was way ahead of its time, you know, as was the, as was the art, as was his, you know, his activism, uh, him being out, him uh, saying that he was, you know, telling the world that he was HIV positive mm. at a time when, you know, that was suicide. Do you remember when he told you, when, when did you guys at the studio all discover it? Yeah, I, I think he was diagnosed maybe shortly before he met me. Uh, so I didn't know until maybe a few months after I met him. You know, it came up in conversation and, you know, it, I, I was taken aback, of course. I was like, wait, you, I said something like, you know, you have a problem with your immune system. Like, you know, I, I knew what that meant. Uh, and it was just, it was tough because, you know, this man is, is living uh, joyously and, and just, you know, in his, in living in the present and, and being creative and, and living a life that, my God, you know, like really cherishing every moment more than most of us do. Knowing that every moment is precious more than most of us. You know, he, he had the knowing, he had the knowledge that, you know, it could, it could all be over soon. Uh, so he, you know, he, he really made the most of, of, of his life. When did the conversation start with you all about the foundation. I mean, and was that a really a sad conversation to broach for him, or was he kind of? Did that give him a, a new energy, knowing that this was a legacy that he was building and, and cementing and securing? I mean, I you know, I, I it, it's very rare that I saw Keith, you know, being a sad guy, right? Like being a melancholy, you know, like oh, woe is me, like I don't have much. To I don't know. Like, I just, I'm sure he had those moments and we have, we've had, you know, we, we had some heavy conversations about, you know, mortality and, you know, what was going to happen when he was gone uh, and how we were going to carry on and further, you know, his work without him, like how, you know, and again, you have to, you know, think of it through the lens of a 18 or 19 year old kid who, hadn't lived that much up to that point, really. Uh, um, was an adult for all of, you know, a year or two. <laughs> that somebody kind of chooses you, uh, sees something in you to say, hey, we've, we've spent all this time together. You know me probably in a, in a way, I don't want to say better than anyone else, but, you know, my relationship was, with him was very different than his relationship was with other folks. It's just that in the last couple of years of his life, I mean, I was there pretty much every day, uh, and I got a sense of 
who the man was and what he wanted and what he thought about certain things and, you know, how he wanted certain things to play out. You know, and then, you know, today I think about like, wow, you know, what would 31-year-old Keith think or what would 63-year-old Keith think, <laughs> right? So it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, obviously – uh, those would probably be different answers. For 31, I mean, that what he achieved within his lifetime, and he died at 31. Astounding. Just, it's completely astounding. Like, it doesn't it's make astounding. sense. It's astounding. It's and, astounding. And also, you know, this year was especially heavy because, you know, this on, on February 16th uh, was the anniversary of his passing. And this particular anniversary was the 32nd anniversary, which means he's been gone longer than he lived. Mm. Uh, So it was heavy. uh, But, you know, the silver lining is that Keith is probably more resonant today than he ever has been. Uh, He is he is being sort of celebrated as, as, a, as an icon, as a, as a gay icon, as an, as an art icon. Mm. You know, his stuff resonates not just to people in his generation, but to younger people uh, who, think, who view him as a, as a hero, really. Yeah, definitely. And I think also the artworks um, invite you to take action. That they're, they're very, like, active works, in a sense. Like, I remember walking with Russell when he was filming years ago in New York, and um, we would walk past the giant sculptures, you know. Like, the public I didn't art, even, yeah. yeah. like, public art that he did. And then, like, Russ discovered the um, the public toilets where whether he has the mural. Where is that, Russ? It's in, in the, the LGBT, uh, LGBT Centre in, in New York, yeah. and it's called Once Upon a Time 1989. And it's this sprawling kind of sexed up, but it all practicing safe sex. Every time I go back, it's my touchstone. <laughs> yeah. I go in there. There's, it, it's an incredible mural that's in the toilet and anybody can walk in there. It's not, it's not behind a screen. It's just a door that goes in. It's not a usable toilet anymore, but they've kept this mural there and it's yeah. incredible. And it's my touchstone. And it's my thing. Whenever I go to people, do you want to come and see this? It's like a little secret mm. piece of art history yeah. and, and pop art life. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really wonderful. It's really wonderful, and you know he he knew who he he knew his audience. You know he was he was <laughs> oh yeah he it was just a, a a sort of bursting with with pride and and you know no shame, uh, and it just really was a, a a beautiful message. Even you know it's just affirming and and just just really great. Do you feel Keith? In the studio, I've been very fortunate you invited me along and it isn't open to the public. It's like an invite-only space, but you walk in and I've seen multiple pictures online of Keith's studio when he was working in the studio. And when you go into the studio, it's like he's just left to go and get coffee. There's still paint marks on the floor where we can see you now. The audience can't see you, but behind you, there's all these like lines of paint as if they've bled from canvas or from tarp onto the wall behind you. And that's all been retained and kept is that space like a sacred space and, and, and why is the public, why is it not a museum? Why, why did it never become the Keith Haring Museum? Interesting. Uh, well, the space, it, it is a sacred space. It is a sacred space. Uh, we've been here now, you know, 30 plus years uh, since, he's, since he was here. He was here in 85. 
we operate the foundation out of here. Um, it's not, a, it's not, it's not the best, uh, it's not the best space for what we need it for now, which is running a foundation. We need offices and where people can have private conversations. And this is just like an open, you know, eighties loft where everybody can hear each other's conversation. So it's not, it's not ideal for our current purposes. And also we'd like, you know, we, we invite researchers to come in and, and study archives and stuff like that. So, I mean, the space, it, it is, it is sacred. I mean, I, you know, we've, we've been working from home since the pandemic, since, uh, I want to say March of, what was it? 2020, 2020. Mm. March 2020. of 2020, uh, everybody got sent home and haven't been, they haven't been back since. And I'm the only one that comes in every day still. Uh, and it's, 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 I don't know. It's just, it, it, the, the space itself centers me and, and it's just, I don't know. There's a, there's, there's an energy here. Uh, and I'm always reminded about the first time I walked in here. Uh, so it, it, you know, it kind of centers uh, my purpose the purpose of the foundation, you know, it kind of just, it, it kind of, it's like a, just a, a daily reminder of, of why we're here and what, what we need to do to continue furthering and elevating Keith. And you've been keeping the rent going on this space since the whole time. And hopefully it's been rent controlled because, you know, when he got the loft, it would have been cheap. Now, 30 years later, I'm sure you're now in prime real estate. That would be an absolute fortune. Mm. It is an absolute fortune. Oh, really? Wow. You know, again, we we um, we have considered perhaps going to another space so that it serves our current purposes. Again, this is a perfect. I mean, a perfectly great artist studio, right? It's not. It's not what we need it for anymore. And sometimes it's tough to sort of think about things in that way, right? We we are very emotional. Especially me, I, I'm, you know, I, I have, you know, all kinds of attachments and, and nostalgia and emotions associated with this mm. place. But when I think about what the future of the Keith Herring Foundation is, it may not necessarily be in this space as sacred as it is to me. Wow. You know, I have to seriously consider whether, you know, another place is more suitable for what we need. Can it be protected for, you know, legacy? Can someone come in and buy we it? Can, we can start a campaign to yeah. like make it a world heritage site. Yeah, <laughs> we, like we, they did, we, like they we did Derek, Derek, Jar, Derek Jarman's house in like Dungeness yeah, in the UK. It's like it has to be bought by <laughs> MoMA needs to come in and buy it and just preserve right, it. Right, right. Well, it, we you know? we can we can we will document you know every inch of this space if we ever decide to move on from it. I mean, we will document it. Uh, not only physically through photos, through film, but also through oral histories from people that were, you know, mm-hmm. people that were his studio assistants, people that were, you know, here and, and functioned mm-hmm. here and worked here and all that stuff. So it's not a decision that we uh, have made, mm-hmm. uh, but it is something that, you know, we have to consider. 
Yeah, and also New York is not the New York it was. And that's, you know, these days, Keith Haring would not be in New York, probably, you know, like starting well, his you career. Well, that, that, that's he the thing, that's the thing. If he'd, been a, yeah, if he'd been a young artist, he'd probably be like in Kansas City or St. Louis or somewhere else. Who knows? You know, anywhere, because that's where all the artists are that I'm looking at right now. Do you know what I mean? It's like, right. they're not necessarily in the center of towns anymore. In, in, in right, I think, I think we have to, you know, we have to think you know in the sense that you know we can't we can't stay stuck with the way keith thought in 1988 necessarily right like we we have to adapt to today and we have to adjust when it's necessary um and i think maybe the space uh is one of those things that we we don't you know even though there's a lot of emotional attachment to it i think we have to think mm. about you know, mm-hmm. what works for today uh, and for our current function, you know, which is mm. keeping his, his legacy uh, continually elevating. Mm. I think we can incredible. do it from here, but we could do it more effectively in a, in a space where we can bring in scholars and people that study and, and all kinds of things. Mm. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. I think it's incredible that people probably don't realize is that because your uh, licensing department copywriting is so tight that when someone does buy a T-shirt from Uniqlo, for example, with uh, a Keith Haring work on it, there is a proportion of that money goes back to the foundation, which then goes back to Keith's causes, Keith's activism. Correct. So this isn't, you're not just giving Correct. money to a corporation, you're giving money back to, you know, charity, which is something like, it's almost like um, an NFT that, you know, like the, the original one, it was written into the contract that every time you buy an image that's been uh, copyrighted and, and put onto merch, there's a proportion of that which then goes back to the foundation, which goes back to helping people that need it. That That's correct. incredible initiative. That is and correct. Gener- and again, you mentioned generosity. Incredible to have that at that time. Yeah, I mean, we we have you know we are very big on uh, trying to be as generous as as Keith would have been uh, in the last you know the last I don't know three years or so. You know, our our philanthropy went from maybe four or five million a year to about eight, seven or eight for the last three or so years. So we, you know, we are continuing to uh, partner with organizations that do good work, uh, some large, some smaller in scale. But, you know, we, we try to find a balance. Uh, we don't we, we don't want to leave the smaller grassroots organizations out. Uh, because those those types of movements were very important to Keith, so we we try to strike a, a balance. Was he rich in his lifetime? He was very successful, but was he a, a highly wealthy artist? I don't think Keith ever saw a million bucks. I don't think he ever had a million dollars ever. So was he rich? I mean. Well, uh, money-wise, I don't know. Rich is a little strong. I mean, he 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 did well for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did well for himself. Rich is I don't know. There's levels, I guess. There's something that really fascinated me, which we spoke to when we met, is that Keith again with his generosity and having the pop shop, and people would come up to him, and he's very approachable. He would always sign autographs, like and 
sometimes, most of the time, do little drawings for people. Now, these are works of art that are floating in the world. And I said to you, how do you... Um, people must come to you all the time to try and get authenticity for these things. And I know for a period of time that the foundation did. Julia grew, and before you, I've seen certificates that she's officially signed. And But then this was officially notified that this would stop. Nothing after a certain year. And what I don't know what year that was, that the foundation would not be... 2012. The foundation after 2012 was not ever going to authenticate any Keith Haring artworks ever again. How, how did that decision get made? And what are the why and what has the kind of kickback been from that? There must have been a lot of frustrated collectors. There's tons of fr frustrated collectors. Um, the decision behind that really had to do with liability, right? And being that we are the Keith Haring authority, right? If Russell, you, for example, buy a key, uh, work that is purported to be by Keith Haring. Mm -hmm. And Russell, you come to me, the Haring Foundation, and say, please authenticate this work, Gil. Uh, I just bought this thing for three million bucks. Mm -hmm. I take one look at it, Russell, and, and basically say to you, I don't know who you bought that from, Russ, but it's a fake. Ouch. What is your recourse, Russell? I am the ultimate authority. What is your recourse? I'd be ter terrified I'd spent $3 million on a fake. Secondly, I would be, I'd probably be frustrated you potentially, or I would be, I'd be trying to you legally find out where I stood, I guess. Yeah, you'd be mad at me because then you're saying, okay, well, how do you know it's not a real one, right? I'm supposed to be the ultimate authority. You're coming to me and I'm saying to you, I'm sorry, I hate to tell you this, but it's a fake. So you're stuck. Your only recourse, Russell, is to challenge my finding via legal means, through courts, through you know, litigation or whatever. So the reason we stopped is for that, is for that reason, is that- Did these come up? Did you, know, you have it, litigations then? Did you have people that were trying we did, to- we did, it's, not that we had, it's not that we had litigations, it's just that the potential for it was so ripe you know, we also we you, you know we also exist in in a community of other artist endowed foundations, right? So we kind of sort of sometimes take cues from the others and see what everybody else is doing. We're, mm -hmm. We don't exist in a vacuum. There's a community that we collaborate with, and and at times we take a look and say, hey, you know, Warhol is doing this, uh, uh, Judd Foundation is doing this. We should consider. And I think there was some of that at the time. I think uh, maybe Warhol was the first that said, we're not doing this anymore. And we followed suit because it was, it was smart. The other, the other side of that is, you know, how do you, how do you fix that? Or how do you, you know, well, maybe down the road we do a, you know, a long delayed uh, catalog resume. Uh, catalog resume basically detailing all the works of art by Keith Haring, which is pro which is a monumental project. Monumental, <laughs> considering all the work that is out there, you know, you have to consider, you know, what to include, what to what to not include. You know, mm. do you include articles of clothing? Do you include little napkins that he signed at a restaurant? You know, it, it's it's a very sort of big project and we have to think about it but um you know we we are 
taking steps in that direction. Let me just say that it is overdue, and I think uh, I think it's something that has to be done. It would be best if it could be done while the people yes. that were here in his time are still with us. It'd yeah, be great yeah. if that would if that were the case, because if you lose that generation and you know this thing gets done thirty years down the road, who knows? So yeah, it yeah. is something that we are strongly considering and strongly looking into. You have a mantra in your in the foundation that is what would Keith have done? And if Well, my mantra is <laughs> when when somebody is interested in collaborating with us, my mantra is I know this is good for you, but how is this good for Keith Herring? And if I don't get a decent answer for that, then if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. But what would Keith have done? I mean, you can you can parse that. What would thirty one year old Keith have done? What would sixty three year old Keith have done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's you know, there's certain uh, sort of third rails that that we don't you know we don't cross, and because that he was very you know very uh, adamant about his feelings on certain things, but then you know other things you have to consider, you have to reconsider, you have to you know the the changing uh, the things have evolved. The world has evolved. We're in a different place now. Do we stay mm. stuck in 1988 thinking or do we evolve? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if all of our product, all, if all of our merchandise looked like pop shop product, you know, we wouldn't be successful in 2022, right? Because that was 1986, seven, eight. It, it just doesn't, it wouldn't translate. You'd have, you have to adapt and adjust for today's times. Absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. We're going to get into our final <laughs> questions with you now, but this has just been like me and Rob are complete nerds and geeks for Keith. I mean, he's... I know. And I actually, I weirdly feel starstruck. Yeah. I'm just, the whole idea of this whole episode is just blowing, <laughs> yeah. blowing my mind. I know that sounds ridiculous. Uh, he's one of the reasons but, we But you know, I was art. just thinking yeah. one thing, actually, you know, like his, his actual words on paper, like the book, um, everyone listening to this, please buy this book if you haven't read it, but the Keith Herring Journals, mm -hmm. um, which I think was published by um, Penguin. I was actually sent by an artist called Tilo Heinzman. He gave it to me as a gift um, when I worked with him years ago. And it's such an impactful book. And I do think that like the 1988 Keith or, you know, whatever it was, 1986 Keith, or, you know, his voice is still there. And actually his mark that he made that, you know, all those marks are still there now and they are still resonant. You know what I mean? Like the, the hymn of then is still having so much power. The line never ends. Moment. It's like his art yeah. ends, but the, he, you feel his oh line God. just continuous. It can keeps going. And his desire to communicate is as relevant now and loud as it was mm. then. Right. And, and he is, he is still communicating from, from the great beyond. So uh, yeah. it was his, his art and his practice was his, his, uh, his way of, of remaining immortal. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I know that the 14-year-old me, when I first discovered him and realized that I didn't have to grow up, I could like cartoons, but I could see him in a museum, is still as obsessed as the 40-year-old me then <laughs> as I am now. And he's been a constant throughout my life as someone that's just been an absolute inspiration and, and, a, and a reason yeah. to kind of love art. And totally. 
you know, that's his legacy has been incredibly important. And and yeah. it's also changed the art world forever because and still does. Yeah, exactly. But that 1982 exhibition, the 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 culture of that, you know, like the bringing together of music and different people into one room, you know, with the collectors, with the curators, but a different energy that that's become something that, you know, like mm. Art Basel Miami is now. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the art world was, was was altered deeply by that what happened in that time. And yeah. even like for me as a gallerist, like I represented Catherine Bernhardt, the painter from New York, um, originally from St. Louis. But like when she first started, people just didn't like what she was doing. People would be quite rude to me on the booth. But I always used to say, what about Keith Herring? Like, you know, and people then start to think about her differently. Because even though she isn't necessarily directly referencing him, but there's there's like an there's element pop. of her line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that she's thinking about everyday things and you know Doritos or like whatever it is and the joy of life or the sadness of life but like I I think thanks to Keith it's helped her you know be able to be taken seriously in her lifetime which is you know a major that that is the gift of his legacy you know what I mean that that we're much more open-minded now as collectors as galleries as you know we're doing everything we can to support different groups of people you know so thank you so much Keith. What is your greatest achievement Gil when it comes to Keith's legacy and, and the role that you've been given? My greatest achievement, my goodness, that is a heavy, heavy question. Um, I don't know. I, I think um, since, I've, since I've been here as the, uh, when I started as the acting director, um, one of the first things that I wanted to do uh, we were, we were advised, let me preface the story. Years and years ago, we were advised by our lawyers that we had uh, in our inventory, in our storage, works of art by Keith's friends, by, by other artists that were not by Keith, by Keith, right? So it was stuff that he collected, stuff that he was gifted, stuff that he traded with everyone, with Basquiat, with Kenny, uh, with uh, Hayes, with all these, all his community, in essence, right? And we were advised, you know, by law, uh, these works of art do not serve a charitable purpose. So what you should do is you should sell these works. And I think back in 1990, uh, we did sell a group of works that were not by Keith, and it caused a bit of an uproar. There were some artists that were like, oh, why, did you, why didn't you tell me you were selling that? And just all this mess. And mind you, it's mm-hmm. the aftermath of Keith's, pa- Keith's passing. So it was very mess, very messy. People were very emotional. So these works of art stood in the back burner for all those years. Fast forward to when I became the acting director. I said, this is the time that we need to move these works. Not only should we sell these works, but we should designate the proceeds for these, the proceeds of these works, of the sale of these works, to a organization that maybe we haven't taken such good care of over the years. So we started thinking about who that might be. We started visiting organizations that we have longstanding relationships with. And then uh, I went to the center the LGBT center where the mural was. Mm. And up to that point, we had maybe given them, I don't know, something, something 
barely north of $50,000 over all those years. And I thought, wow, you know, there's a mural there that he painted. Uh, I get that they are a community center uh, and community centers organizationally tend to be a little messy because they, they do a little bit of everything. Mm. Uh, and I met with the executive director there, Glenda Testone, and I just thought that she was just, just incredible. Just, just who she was. She, she, in a sense, was like the mayor of this of this place, right? Like she's like the center of this place, <laughs> in in a way that you know most leaders are not. Uh, so, I said, okay, uh, if you guys all agree, we should give the proceeds of this sale to the center. So it was decided, center is going to get this money. When we uh, get the appraisal for all these works of art, and I'm sorry, it's a long-winded story. I'll, I'll try to cut it short. Uh, we get the appraisal, uh, and Sotheby's, who did an amazing job at, at executing the sale, they say to us, you know, it's going to bring in, uh, we think conservatively, a million dollars, which we thought was so COVID happens. So we delay the sale. Sale gets delayed, 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 delayed. Finally, the sale happens. The sale brought in $4.6 million. Oh you see the, 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 the jaw on the floor of, that's yeah. exactly what we yeah, were doing. We, we, right were, now, we yeah. were just <laughs> astonished. We were just blown away. Oh, wow. Uh, nobody expected that uh, sort of body of work to bring in as much as it did. Mm. And, you know, it, it spoke to a lot of things. It spoke to Keith's community. It spoke to, you know, what, what the purpose of the gift was, you know, the center, who it was going to benefit. Mm. Uh, $4.6 bucks. And at that point, and it's still, that's still the largest gift that we've ever given actually it ends up being something like 3.6 because you know the sotheby's makes a commission and but it ends up being the largest gift that we've ever given and to date uh that i would say is probably my greatest wow. uh accomplishment while i've been with this organization mm. but and actually russell not my last. video of that <laughs> Um, yeah, you've got much more to do. Um, Russell sent me the video of that, um, which I think you were in actually the, for, for Dear Keith, which was the, the works from his collection um, in 2020. And it's an extraordinary body of work, isn't it? Like all the different artists. All of his friends. My, my favorite thing Scarf is the. Um, and... Yeah, my favorite thing was the uh, the boombox that Kenny Scarf player. had painted all over. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think maybe there was a badge on it or something of, of Keith himself. I think but... Kenny Scarf has yeah. the, the so... last drawing ever made. He he said in a documentary that he, when Herring was there, Keith was there in, in his bed. At the end, he gave him a pad, pad and pen and said to him, "Do a drawing." And it was like a, a half formed baby. And I think Kenny well, has he, that. he asked him to do the baby because the baby you know, in a sense was a signature. It was the, the easiest thing that Keith did. He rattled off babies like they were his signature. Uh, mm. And it was extremely sad because uh, he had a lot of difficulty doing it. He, at that point, had lost control of his motor skills. And, you know, he just really, it was just a, a real, real struggle 
to to draw the baby, which was mm. effort, effortless at one point. So was you there sad. at the end? Was you there? Uh, I was. Oh my god! Who else was there at the time? Uh, there were a group of, of people. Uh, I know Teresa Scharf was there quite a bit. Uh, Alba uh, Clemente was there quite a bit. I remember Lisa Cooper being there quite a bit. Uh, just a, a small group. It wasn't very big. Uh, I think uh, Cece, who was Futura's wife at the time, was there. It was a very small group. Um, it was like maybe a handful of people that were there at the end. God. Well, amazing. We're going to get into our final questions. Thank you so much, Gil. This is just magic. Um, well, the question we ask every guest that comes on is, if you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, <laughs> what would it be and why? Maybe we could have a Keith version, or like one <laughs> Keith work in particular that you could have for yourself. Uh, but he's, oh and if there's any goodness. other artworks in the world, but maybe let's make it Keith centric. Oh my goodness. That is such a tough question. So many, so many to choose from. Mm -hmm. uh, if it were a, if it were a Keith work, it would be a work called Gill's dream. Oh, obviously for you. Uh, obviously for me. And I did own it at one point uh, and sold it as, you know, as Keith would say, like, he's like, listen, if you ever need to sell something, please do. Don't think twice about it. Don't get hung up on it. It's what it's for. So please do. And at the time I had a new family, had a new uh, two-year-old uh, you know, so it, it, it was time. Uh, so if I had a, 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 to, to do a heist, that'd be the one. <laughs> you you get dream, it back. You could look it up. I, hey, get I it just back. did it. it. So it looks like a kind of crucifixion almost. It is. I was uh, obsessed yeah. with crucifixes at the time with, with uh, right. just the imagery of, of this, this sort of torture device being sort of worshipped. And, and that was, you know, I, yeah. And I think I mentioned to him I had a dream about uh, a crucifix, and and he painted it. Wow, let's get that That's back for you. Thing. I've never I've never seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other the the other question we ask every guest is, um, what is your favorite color? Um, it's a tie between a sort of a cobalt, sort of Eve Kleinish blue mm. and and gray and gray i think it's because you know it's it's the center of of two extremes of, of black and white so i think mm. gray is 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 pretty cool i like gray what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your job um the best advice I think is uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness uh, than it is to ask for permission. 
I've heard that as well, yeah. Norman, just go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. Do I'm really it. sorry I did that. Rather than going, do you mind if I do that? Because I'd be like, no. So you just just yeah. do it and then, go ahead, then apologize go ahead and after. Do it. Yeah. Go ahead and do it. Do it your way. And then if it turns out to be a problem, then you can be sorry about it. But I've never heard that. I absolutely love that. That is such good advice as well for all the artists listening. It is good and, advice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when can we see the book that has... 5,000 subway drawings in because I don't think that exists yet, does it? I don't think it exists, but there is interest in that book. I know Keith talked about, uh, I think, in, a, in an interview that you know that that should be a book. Uh, and I think that there are some herring uh, aficionados out there that have uh, had discussions with me and, 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 and talked about that book. And obviously, that would it, it would involve uh, Muna Sang, uh, because Muna is the uh, executor, executrix of uh, the uh, Sang Kwang Chi estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was the photographer. Those, he took all the photographs. Yeah, that's correct. So in a sense, we co-own those uh, photos because of the we own the IP of the herring imagery, and then the Kwang Chi. Uh, estate owns the the photography, right? So uh. it's 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 a sort of a jointly owned thing. And and uh, Muna is wonderful. She is you know she's family, right? I mean she's you know she has this this trove of uh, of works, and uh, she is an artist in her own right, uh, and she has her own story. But how she has uh, elevated uh, Sen Kuang Chi is is really just admirable and just really wonderful. I'm really glad mm. that Sen Kuang Chi is having a moment and and is being elevated and is being looked at quite uh, seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm, brilliant, great. Wow. Well, um, this has been such an honor, and I am so grateful for you for being so open and um, generous and for your dedication to your friend's art and the legacy of it. And, you know, I followed you earlier because we were doing this interview on Instagram and I saw a really beautiful photograph of your son. And I noticed that he was wearing um, a T-shirt of Keith Perry <laughs> under it. And I just thought, what a cool, like, I don't know. It just, like a full circle. Know, it's just yeah, very yeah, sweet. Yeah. It must be so nice for you to have seen your friend Keith's work, like through the eyes of your own kids. I just thought that was like oh my a goodness. very, very cool thing. They've been, I mean, Keith has been a part of their lives, even though he didn't. He didn't get to meet them, uh, but they have, you know, he has been a part of their lives ever since they were born. So they're very steeped in, in Keith Haring and, and the history and the culture and my sort of part of it. And so they're very, they're very uh, happy about that. Everybody's got to follow uh, the Keith Herring Foundation on Instagram, which I do, and I'm obsessed with it. And uh, you guys run that, and you're very good at – I don't even think people tag the foundation, but you manage to find whenever anybody posts anything (laughs) with a bit of Keith clobber on or merch or they're next to a Keith poster or something, you find it and then you repost it. And keeping this kind of line of Keith going, this this legacy, just you can see how it affects the world. Yeah, it's it's connection. I mean, I think Keith would have uh, loved the internet. I think he would have loved oh, yeah. social media. I think he would have taken it somewhere else, and he he would have done something fun and different with it. Uh, but you know, we we try to we try to keep that connection open. We try to keep that dialogue open. Uh, you know, when people take photographs in front of the mural in Pisa or Crack is Whack on 128th Street, 
you know, there's mm-hmm. a group that's trying to activate that park and, and use it for, for good and, and, and to teach kids about health and, and all kinds of things. So there, there's, you know, a lot of sort of interaction that is still happening with Keith's art. It's very much alive. And you can go to herring.com, which is just Keith's surname, um, for the Keith Herring Foundation's website, which is so brilliant. And there's a pop shop. It. You can buy merch still. Pop shop. Pop-shop.com. Uh, for a little while longer, uh, mm. we are we are sunsetting popshop.com, pop, pop-shop.com. Uh, and it'll be up till about October 31st. And oh, then... Wow. Uh, it will become something of a sort of historical page. We'll, we'll, you know, maybe detail and talk about some of the pop shop history and, and why we, why it's important. And then we will think about what pop shop becomes in 2023, 20 and beyond, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it should have a different iteration and we'll see what that ends up being. That is to be determined. TBD. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Gil. Thanks <laughs> for exciting. everyone listening to this amazing episode. Go and just, yeah. just get involved in Keith Herring and you'll go down so many rabbit holes and you'll be happy you did because it's all and, magic. Um, hilariously, I, I've been doing um, home renovations with builders for the last six months, which comes to a conclusion next week. And I'm about to hang on my art and I've got loads of things piled up here. And one of the things is a Maripol uh, screen print that she gave me years ago, about 15 years ago. And it's got a picture of Keith in a collage oh, from, from the 80s. Well, he's, been, he's been watching And it's got Madonna in her yeah. pink hair. So he's actually like sat right next to me oh, right now. Amazing. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, we'll be back Gil. very soon. Thank you, Gil. Thank we you, love Russell. you. Thank you, Robert. See you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com